What is up, people? What is up? We got the word is live. The word is live, and this one is going to be crazy good. If I do this right, and Kiki helps me do this right, I'm gonna make some of y'all mad. I'm gonna make wanna motivate some of y'all. Some of y'all are going to go home crying. Some of y'all are going to have to ask your parents, do I really do that? You're going to go to your best friends. Am I really like that? You're going to think twice about posting on Facebook. It's going to change everything. We've got an amazing guest. Kiki, do we not have an amazing guest? Yes, we sure do. It's a little um, it's interesting. It's pulling in a whole new perspective. I think it's uh, going to be good. Yes, yes. So people, the word, the word is where you come as a refresher, for those of you who knew, the word is where you come to get your straight-up sales wisdom, where you come to get knowledge on success, personal growth, motivation, and making your numbers in life or in a sales job. So with that, I don't even want to mess around any longer. Let's get them on. Kiki, I would like to give you the honors. Who do we got joining us today? So we have Mr. David Dunning. He was um, a professor, a psychology professor at Cornell and recently moved to the University of Michigan, still uh, teaching psychology, but he is most famous for, he did uh, four different studies on being unskilled and being unaware of it, and just how scary that is, you know, first of all, you think you're better than you are, and then because you're so incompetent, you're not able to acknowledge that you're unskilled and need to do some growing. So David Dunning, welcome, David my Dunning. main man. Welcome. And you're on mute. So up towards the top, there's a little microphone button. OK, I just pressed the unmute button. So either I have muted myself or unmuted myself. I see a thumbs up. That's fantastic. Welcome, 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 David, my man. Thank you so much. No, thank you. It's my pleasure. We are so excited, so, so excited. So. I'd like to ask you one question, and then we did something that I think you'll find interesting. We did okay. something called the word on the street. Mm. We went out onto the street and talked to some people. Mm -hmm. Before we did that, could you share with our audience what is the Dunning-Kruger effect? Okay. Well, the Dunning-Kruger effect is many things, but the main thing it is is that if you don't know, uh, if you're a poor performer, if you're incompetent, uh, if you're ignorant of something, uh, you uh, d you don't know it. Scratch that. You actually can't know that you're no good at something, or you're a poor performer. That is, you in a lot of areas in life. It's not true everywhere, but in a lot of areas of life, you simply don't have the skills or the expertise to know that you don't have the skills or the expertise. And uh, so that's come to be known uh, as the Dunning-Kruger effect. There's a lot of fallout, a lot of other stuff that comes from that, but that's the main point of the research that we've been doing for the last few years. So basically what you're saying, people suck, and they continue to move through life sucking and don't even know that they suck. In fact, yeah, you can imagine that part of the reason why a lot of people suck is they just have no clue that they're sucking. Uh, <laughs> if they knew, well, first off, if, if they knew, right, they'd be getting advice, and so they would no longer be sucking. They would be sucking less. But uh, uh, so just logically, people who suck can't know that they're they're sucking. But uh, but it, it's a problem that people think they're doing just fine. They think they're experts. They think they're superior. They think they're talented when in fact they're not. And uh, uh, that's just unfortunately a part of the human condition that infects all of us. 
Okay, so then using that logic, if I follow that logic tree, if we ask people if they're good at something, they're going to tell us they're good, even, even though they suck. Most of the time. That is, you'll get some people who uh, doubt themselves. Oh, that, that's always true. But if you take a look, at least in the United States and, and North America, if people are going to make a mistake, it's going to be overrating themselves. And it won't be overrating themselves a little bit. It's going to be overrating themselves a lot. And, well, that, a, and the reason for that is they can't really identify the shortcomings that they have. Well, let's put this to the test, Dee. Okay. What do you think of them apples? Uh, I'm, I'm all for tests. All right, so Kiki, what do we got? Let's do this. We went out onto the street and we asked people, David, what they thought of themselves. Let's hear what they have to say. What's the what's the what's the word on the street? So, what is your profession? I'm in sales. You're in sales. Yeah. And on a scale of one to ten, how would you say you rank? I'm a ten. So, uh, what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm the co-founder of Ramp Up. Co-founder of Ramp Up, yeah. Yeah. So, do you do any sales with that position? We do, regularly. How would you rank yourself one scale of one to ten in your sales ability? Nine. I'm an HR manager. Wonderful. And how would you rank yourself on a scale of one to ten? Eleven. Okay, Ron, what do you do for a living? Uh, sales. David, mm -hmm. what did you think of those responses? What did it trigger in you? Well, it, uh, those are, are, are typical responses. That is, uh, you have to remember that everybody is doing the best they can. They, uh, and uh, if they could imagine better, they'd try to do that better. So naturally, a lot of people are going to think that are closer to 10 than they really can be because they simply don't know what better looks like or it, somehow they miss what's better. But, it, uh, but you see this everywhere. Uh, for example, uh, I didn't do this work, but uh, someone else did this work. They went to a, uh, a major software development firm in Silicon Valley and asked the engineers there uh, to rate themselves. And they actually went to two firms. And in the first firm, 
uh, 32% of the engineers said they were in the top five performers in that, that firm. And that sounds outrageous until you find out the second firm, uh, 42% said they were in the top five. So um, I'm shitty at math, but I can do uh -huh. that math, right? So that, that's right. <laughs> so what they're saying is almost one-third, a little over one-third of the people felt they were in the top 5%. That's right, and and you find this everywhere. So if you ask high school seniors how good they are getting along with others, no one says they're below average, and 25% say they're in the top one percentile. They're in the 99th percentile uh, or above. So uh, th that's that's the phenomenon we're talking about. Um, it's easy to see the good in what we do, but it's hard to see the wrong or impossible to see the wrong, or impossible to see the missing in what we do, whether it be career, home life, whatever, and, and as a consequence, we're left with uh, an overly rosy view of, of who we are and what we can do. Now, mind you, it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens overwhelmingly. All right, you said something that really jumped out at me. You basically said it's impossible for them to see. Mm -hmm. Do you really mean impossible? Is it really impossible? Well, some of it's impossible. I mean, uh, uh, that is a lot of uh, uh, what we do. There might be a better way to do it, but we just don't know of it, or we or we would do it. Uh, that is the story for me. Is when I was a teenager, I played cello, and <clears throat> I could hit the notes and I could make all the notes correctly, and I thought I was pretty good. And then someone gave me a record by uh, Jacqueline Dupre, uh, the famous famous 20th century cellist, who. Uh, played an instrument I was just completely unfamiliar with. Uh, just, uh, if you want to talk about crushing it, she literally crushed her cello. I mean, this is <laughs> some of the most evocative, emotional stuff you could ever hear. And I heard that and I quit. <laughs> I, just, I didn't know you could do that with that instrument. I would never yeah. get there. And it, uh, um, uh, so, you know, people would do better if they knew a little bit more about the Jacqueline Dupre's in their midst. That's number one. The other thing is that um, often we think we know how to do something or how to be a success, uh, but we get something wrong. But because we have this theory, um, we think we're being led to the promised land of success, but in fact, there, there might be a glitch. It, it, all it takes is a minor glitch. That's going to lead us into the unpromised land, if you will, to a disaster uh, that we should have foreseen, or we're at least going to miss the success that we that we wanted. For, for example, sometimes you, you, you go ahead. No, keep going. Oh no, no. Sometimes it is possible to uh, to see there are things that I'm doing that are lacking, um, and I'm saying that's absolutely right. You know, it's our imperfections, but uh, what I'm uh, saying is there are uh, another host of imperfections that we may have that we just don't see. They, re they remain invisible to us, and if they remain invisible to us, they remain things we cannot do, or they remain things... Interesting. All right, so what... There's so many questions I want to ask, but where I want to go with this one is, so what even prompted you to start this research? How did you go down this road? Uh, I, I went down this road because uh, I, I belong to a uh, uh, an area of social psychology that looks at misbelief. That is, looks at how people uh, have views of the world or have opinions or believe in facts that simply either aren't true or can't be true. And uh, one of the one of the experiences you have if you're in a faculty office is you have many people. Uh, students, other colleagues, people from the town come in and say the most outrageous things. And uh, you sit there and you kind of go, 
doesn't this person realize what they're saying is outrageous? <laughs> and this, after years and years and years, uh, I just I wanted to find out: did people actually believe in, in these outrageous things? So one day, just sounds like the Republican, sounds like the GOP debate. Uh, well, it, there's, there, there are certain aspects of the GOP debate. You do wonder what the sky is, uh, what the color of the sky is on their planet. It is, it is the case. Uh, but that's, it's the case for all of us, unfortunately. But, uh, but Justin Kruger walked in my office one day, said he wanted to do work with me, and I said, well, I have this high-risk, high-reward idea. Uh, I have no idea what we're going to find out. Let's go find out. And that led to the Dunning-Kruger effect. Interesting. Interesting. So, all right. So we, we understand it's the idea that says people who aren't skilled don't know they're not skilled, and they lack even right. the knowledge to tell themselves they're not skilled. There's a question I've been burning to ask, but I'll keep letting you go before I finally ask this question. But So is this a social thing, like cultural, or is this a nature thing? Is this a nurture or a nature? Oh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm going to say it's a nature thing and a lack of nurture thing. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you just take a look at <clears throat> the task of, of um, knowing what you don't know, if you sit down and you break it down, you try to figure out what does it take for a person to know what they don't know, you realize it's an impossible task. So you don't have to go to genetics, uh, you don't have to go to biology, you don't have to go to psychology, you just stay within the realm of logic and you realize this is an almost impossible task. Of course people aren't going to be able to do it by themselves. And we're talking about people trying by themselves to figure out are they, uh, are they skilled or are they unskilled. That, that's really what we're talking about. It's a lack of nurture thing because often um, the evidence is out there. I mean the, the knowledge, the expertise is out there to be able to tell you whether or not yes. you're yes. unskilled or skilled. And either people don't take advantage of it or the world doesn't realize this is an issue that we have to help people with. Um, so uh, what we what we lack is a set of social mechanisms that would tell us it's time to improve, and that's the thing that surprises me. Does oh man, this is opening up such a huge can of worms. But the, exactly. The, yeah, society <laughs> doesn't tell us that we need to improve. So uh, I'm going to go this way. So does that? So does the idea of PC or HR departments not wanting people's feelings hurt and and everybody has to make everybody feel good? Does that play into this idea? Because if I tell you you're not good, that could hurt your feelings. Or if I tell you that you're you're incompetent in so many words, then that could piss you off. Is is that part of this thing you're talking about? Uh, the answer is yes, that, and that can go so far as to, um, in the last half of the 20th century, there were 16 air crashes, where if you listen to the black box afterward, you realize everybody but the pilot knew that the plane was going to crash, and they were too polite in trying to tell him or her. Okay, wait, David, we lost you for a second. Oh, okay. That was so good. So oh, no, no, I do want to repeat boxes, this, because, yes. because, because this is how extreme it can be, uh, that is... Politeness is makes the world a wonderful place, but politeness does have it have its dark side. And its dark side is in the last half of the 20th century, there were 16 air crashes that occurred. That if you listen to the black box afterward, the crew knew the plane was in trouble, but was too polite to tell the pilot. What? That, yes, uh, that's how far that is. Our ability to say, uh, well, I once had a colleague who gave uh, uh, a speech that was so bad that when he asked people afterward how it was, people would only venture that, well, gee, people are going to be talking about that speech for years. That's about as far as he would go in terms of 
uh, negative or corrective feedback. So part of it, uh, uh, you know, is a little bit of a dark side to politeness. I'm not going to not polite this. I, we all love to be in a polite world, but we have to be uh, better to uh, as, let's say, an organization or a society or as a family or as human beings be able to puncture uh, that politeness uh, at some point to effectively give people feedback. And I should add, we should also uh, develop some skills so that we can hear corrective feedback when other people are giving, giving it to us. That's something that uh, we find people really have trouble with. Okay, so I want to go there. I, I want to go there to help people with the... I wanna, in my question, I want to do both. But before we ask the questions around how do I become more aware and how do I accept feedback and how do I give the mm -hmm. feedback, I really want to understand what do you think, you personally, to the implications of this in society, whether it's at work, with our family, on social media, what do you think the implications are here, if, if any? Well, it does mean that people are left with lives that are, are somewhat diminished. I mean, that, that is, they make mistakes. Uh, I'm of an age now where you begin to realize that a lot of decisions you made in your 20s and your 30s, oh, now you're seeing the effects of those decisions, <laughs> both the good ones and the bad ones. And so uh, if, you, if, if you make uh, wrong decisions, uh, you can't have a life diminished. But here's the trick. Sometimes your life can be uh, diminished in such a way that you never know it's been diminished. So uh, the imperfections that we look at penalize people not by making them do visible mistakes, but rather it prevents them from having successes that they could have had, that they don't know they could have had, because you know they, uh, uh, they, they, they never did the extra thing. So for example, if you're in sales, you didn't do the extra thing that would cause your last customer to recommend you to the next person you can make a sale to, for example. You never see that. That was an opportunity for you, um, but that was an invisible opportunity you never know that you missed because you did not do the extra thing. So, okay, so I remember a long time ago, one of the greatest, okay, I'm stretching it, one of my favorite terms I've kept with me for years is you can't miss what you never had. Mm. Right? That's a powerful right. statement when you really think about it. So it's, you're sort of arguing in many ways, not the scientific term of a tree falls in the woods than anybody here, but exactly. the, metaphorical, the metaphorical sense, if I don't know, then is this bliss okay or is it not? Well, it depends. Uh, you know, it depends. Everybody's free to make whatever choices they want to make in life. Uh, but um, so you, you have to make a choice whether you're satisfied with what you have or... Uh, are you dissatisfied with what you uh, what you have? And if you're dissatisfied with what you have, uh, there may very well be things you don't know that are preventing you from getting to uh, where uh, where you want to go. So um, <clears throat> uh, uh, I, I, for example, personally think that uh, at least in terms of education, people miss a lot of opportunities in education that would really have improved their lives. Uh, uh, would just make their lives better off, off socially, culturally, financially, or whatever, uh, but they don't realize it. Now, <clears throat> they may be very uh, content with where they're at, and that may be perfectly okay, but they're also, uh, I forget who said it, you know, people can li li lead lives of quiet disappointment, um, <laughs> who exactly are, are, are disappointed, and <laughs> it's a sort of a free-floating disappointment, because they, they literally don't know what was the point in the decision tree that led them on this path as opposed to another path. But you're right, now we're getting to, uh, now we're getting to some very um, substantive heavy issues in ethics, uh, uh, heavy issues in philosophy. But the key is that uh, what um, 
causes people to live with their imperfections and be quite satisfied with their imperfections. You literally don't see the penalties for those imperfections. It just never happens. Uh, or that, or it, it, it involves things that never happen that you never know never happen, which could can lead a, people to be quite content where they are. Could a good metaphor be like a horse with blinders, or when the barn is burning, you put blindfolds on the horse and he's perfectly okay? Is that a good metaphor? That's a that the horse can see what the horse can see and never misses the things on the side, if you will. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right, so then if that's the case, talk to me or talk to us about how is how as individuals do are we affected by this? Like, right? How does it affect us? I'm assuming it affects all of us to varying degrees. No one's mm -hmm. um, it's not escapable, no one's you know, void of it happening. And what do we do? How do we become conscious of this sub-unconscious? Mm. Well, I think um, uh, it affects us in a lot of different ways uh, because each of us has our, our pockets of incompetence that we don't know about. Uh, for some, it's more severe. For some people, it's more flamboyant than for other people. But this is something that's all about us. And, and by the way, I should mention, <clears throat> if you look at the Internet, uh, people like to throw the Dunning-Kruger effect as an epithet at other people. You are suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect. And, and I wince at that because that's almost getting it right but not getting it right because the Dunning-Kruger effect is not about the person you're arguing with. The, the Dunning-Kruger effect is about you, <laughs> you know, me. Uh, and it really should be about the self. Um, well, uh, I think the main thing is that uh, um, a lot of this occurs because, at least in our culture, we really depend on the person to diagnose themselves, you know, to be uh, their own doctor, if you will. In fact, in medicine, it, it's, it's it, you know, it's policy. You know, doctors are supposed to diagnose their own weaknesses in terms of their skills or, or technique and then go forth and improve upon them. It's self-directed learning. That's a big principle in medicine. Well, that's a big principle in, in our culture. Um, and uh, a easy thing that we could do, a cheap thing that we could do to improve ourselves is just not make it an individual thing, not make it a personal project, but make it more of a social project. That is, um, ask for advice. People don't like asking for advice, but people don't realize just how complimented other people are if you ask them for advice. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the number, or, you know, uh, get a mentor. I yes! Life is just so much easier. Um, in ways that you could not imagine. Well, yeah, of course, ways that you cannot imagine. You cannot imagine. <laughs> exactly. That's the whole point. Uh, if you can get someone uh, who's older, who's lived through it, that is, the, the old Chinese proverb is, you know, to find out the road ahead, ask those who are coming back. Yes. Uh, you know what the experience is like. Uh, I, I think that can just make life so much easier that it's it's well worth the bargain. Or, <clears throat> you know, we may have our own pockets of incompetence, but luckily except for a few areas, we all don't match up. So if we can uh, lead on other people when decisions are important and sort of get feedbacks from groups or communities, um, that's something that, that we can certainly do that's cheap, that's certainly going to improve uh, our, both our decisions and, and the conditions that we're in. And absent that, um, uh, what we really should do is another aspect of the human condition that's involved in here is that whenever we're making a decision, we tend to think about why is this the right decision. We really should be spending time, when it's important, asking how could I be wrong here? Um, that is, how could well, I be heading us down the uh, wrong path? So, you know, uh, so um, uh, a lot of good organizations appoint a person to be a devil's advocate. That is, they're appointed and it rotates among people. This person is just there to whine 
about how the group is making the wrong decision or poking holes in the, in the reasoning of the group. And those groups do better. I mean, there's been work done on that in, in scientific groups. And the scientific groups that assign people to poke holes in the um, reasoning of, of, the, of everybody else uh, make better decisions at the end of the day or more productive at the end of the day. And if you can't find that person, try to be that person. And one ah. exercise that, uh, for yourself, and one exercise that uh, I do is that if it's an important, if it's an important decision, I'll simply say, okay, I'm going to make this decision. I've made this decision. It's three years later. The decision turned out to be horribly wrong. Okay, imagine what happened to make it horribly wrong. That is, I try to pretend I'm looking back, and you know, the whole thing just went screwy. Um, uh, that often is a very good exercise for me uh, to point out things that I should be maybe a little bit more worried about. So, David, I, I live. Okay, okay. How do I say this? It seems to me everything you're saying. It seems to me that there's a great deal of humility required here. It almost seems to me that anybody who reads the Dunning, the Dunning-Kruger effect should almost be changed to the Dunning-Kruger trigger, because mm. the minute you read your studies you read reviews and you understand it, you would think it would almost by default force me to say, well, I don't know enough, right? Mm -hmm. And begin to look for the mentor. So self-directed learning can still be part of I don't know what I don't know. Exactly. So I need to find a mentor. I need to read a book. Uh, I'm a huge skier. And, and I, I, when people ask me if I'm a good skier, I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty good. But the truth is, I've got a level two certification how to teach. I can ski pretty well, and I know how complicated it is and complex it is. Um, but I only ski with people better than me, which mm. is becoming more and more difficult. But mm. only people ski people with better than me because they go places that I'm like, I, haven't, I wouldn't go on my own. And mm -hmm. they do things I can't do, and I visually watch them. But mm -hmm. I got there because I finally recognized that I wasn't that good. And the only way to get better. So there's this humility. How do people do that? Like, it seems to me two people have. Too many people are trying to defend their position, protect mm. their sense of self, not open up and say, okay, I suck. Right. Uh, no, I agree with you. Uh, that is, and in fact, uh, above my desk um, at my office, I have a little post-it note with the word humility on it that I put there. You know, oh, I brought it with me uh, from Cornell. Uh, because that, that is the word, but the question is, okay, how do you do that other than, you know, just beat yourself and say, well, of course I could be wrong, end of story. <laughs> you, you know, uh, because the, the trick here isn't um, thinking less positively of yourself. The trick is avoiding error. The trick is avoiding being the poor performer. How do you do that? And uh, so I think there, there are a lot of things that people can do. We've talked about getting a mentor. We've talked about uh, at least considering how you might be wrong. Um, there are... Um, Two things that I, I tell graduate students when they, they, they come into our, our program. Uh, the first is that uh, experience matters. Learn from experience. But uh, there are two different ways you can, you can have experience. One is, for example, you can go into sales, for example, and have 30 years of experience. And you learn and you become uh, better and so forth. But a lot of people um, lead their lives, and what they do is they have one year's of experience 30 times over. Oh! Oh, my God! David, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. Oh, so I know I sent you my book, right? And I yes. have a chapter in there called Experience Versus Expertise. And you just... There you go. Oh, my God. You just gave the term. I've been dying to get my arms around this. One yeah. person has 10 years of experience and 30 years of expertise versus 30 years of experience and one-year expertise. That's right. Oh, David, I want to hug you. I want to hug you. That was well, no, thank you because awesome. I, hadn't, I hadn't got to that part of the book yet. Uh, <laughs> and, 
And what I've argued is our society has put so much emphasis on the years of experience and not forces to look at our expertise. That's right. That's right. And and that and that's the trick because the the other part of the work that we do is trying to figure out how good are people at spotting expertise in other people. That's a whole new a whole another story that we might be able to get to. But um, but no, but that's exactly right. You know, ex you know, experience versus expertise. Uh, you really have to think: Is my experience giving me expertise, or am I just you know doing the same thing over and over again, or am I doing something different? And the other thing I tell my graduate students is: If you look at, and this is true for me, and I, look, I'm I'm just this way. If I look at my past work, like I read a paper that I published five years ago, I'm likely to be embarrassed by it, uh, no matter what the paper is. And I've realized that's a feeling to welcome, because it yes. means that I've moved in terms of my understanding of the craft of, of, that I do, that in terms of doing uh, rigorous research, writing it in a way that people can understand, I've moved somewhere. If I look at a paper that I wrote ten years ago, I'm perfectly satisfied with, with it, that means I've wasted the last ten years, uh, for example. So uh, that uh, that that's something I often tell graduate students, and uh, uh, luckily learners they're prone to things they've done in the past, and uh, I tell them, good, that's that's a feeling to welcome. So do you think that if people do, if you buy into the idea that people's language is a key into themselves, so that woman and the word on the street. When asked why does she give herself an eight, she said, "Well, I've been doing it for eight years." Could mm -hmm. I assume? Let's go into that idea of spotting it. My first gut reaction is she sucks. Mm. She didn't talk about things she'd accomplished. She didn't talk about her her knowledge base. She just defaulted to, hey, "I'm doing eight years. I'm fucking good, right?" Right. Is that an example? That language is that a sign that somebody is stuck or is is doesn't know what they don't know? Well, I think uh, there are ways. Uh, there are a lot of different examples that that you, that you can point to about whether a person has actually thought about, um, <clears throat> you know, are they any good or not. So, I mean, there are ways you can ask a person, you know, are you good at X, and you can tell that this is the first time they've ever asked themselves the question, uh, for example. So, uh, and, and there are ways that you. Uh, well, uh, let's put it this way: there are a lot of different ways. Um, it's a question that you want to ask. Um, from the from the behavior this person is giving you, are they giving you any indication about whether they're any good or not? Uh, so here's the paradoxical one I look for. So inevitably, a person I'm I'm working with, uh, like a student or a secretary or whatever, or me, uh, will make a mistake, and I'm absolutely interested in how do they react uh, when I point out the mistake. And the one the one thing I don't want to see is a person who looks me in the eye and then smoothly gives me the excuse as to why they're not at fault for the mistake. That tells me this person makes a lot of mistakes and is perfectly the one skill they have is you know is dismissing the mistake. I'm if a person makes a mistake, I point it out and they look and they don't know what to do and and maybe they're even uh, about to cry inappropriately. You know they're about about to about to cry. I kind of go, well, this is a person who's not used to making mistakes. So I don't know if there's anything specific you you want to um, uh, uh, look for. But uh, one of the things I look for is, does this person look like they've handled this question before, whether it be making mistake or thinking about their own uh, skills? Uh, by the way, what this also means is one way you can definitely make a person think about their own skills is through self-assessment exercises. I know, I know a lot of corporations do that. Uh, they may not do it as wisely as they could. Because, as you've pointed out, a self-assessment exercise should be about what you've done, your accomplishments, or maybe uh, the, the mistakes you've made. It shouldn't be about your 
labels you put on yourself, like I'm a good engineer, or I'm an experienced person, or I'm socially skilled. Uh, that's too abstract. You want to talk about what have I done? Oh Both my on God! Good side and the bad side. That's David, what you want David. people to do. Oh my God! You make me so excited because I am not a PhD. I am not a learned man. I read a lot of books. I apply lots of shit. But I have a whole section on this in my book. I fight with my clients sometimes, right, who hire people and they say, we need 15 years of experience. And I say, I will not do that. I will not. You need to figure out a way how you get to the expertise within that experience. Now I'm going to steal your term. You need people with 15 years of expertise regardless of the experience. So, oh my gosh, you I feel so affirmed right now, David. You're like, well, that's oh. good, because, because quite frankly, I uh, uh, just want to tell your audience, I'm, uh, I'm a scientist, so I have this little guy in the back of my brain saying, make sure that what you're saying is consistent with the, the science that's out there, the evidence that's out there, the, the data that's out there. So I'm happy. <laughs> uh, I'm happy, too. Uh, that, 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 that you're resonating with uh, what the science says in terms of uh, trying to figure out who you are and trying to figure out how you can become more expert. Uh, that's terrific. So, all right. So, let's. So, a lot of our listeners are sales managers, sales leaders, they're salespeople, um, they're entrepreneurs, they're CEOs of startups, right? We got a lot of these people who wear a lot of hats and have to do a lot of stuff and don't have tons mm. of support. And hires are critical. So, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. What is the impact? Or, no, let me ask you a different one. How do I look for someone who suffers from the Dunning-Kruger effect, I know you don't really like that term, but how do I know if someone is really self-aware or or I'm getting someone who's going to respond well to growth versus someone who's going to, how do I do that in the interview? Well, I think uh, uh, your your question actually contains the seeds of an answer, which is to what extent does a person think of themselves as a work in progress as opposed to, or they're, they're willing to talk about growth. Uh, as opposed to, no, I'm a finished product, I've got everything you want, uh, you know, I'm, I am, I am everything that you need, all wrapped up with, with nary and imperfection, no, 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 no. You, you want something who's willing to talk first about accomplishments, uh, about behaviors in the past, uh, second, talk about weaknesses in the past, talk about ways they would like to grow, and um, uh, 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 also, how does a person respond when things go wrong? Because actually, uh, a lot of uh, a, a lot of uh, uh, a successful organization depends on how do people respond when things go wrong or when things go imperfectly. And so the question becomes, how does a person respond when uh, uh, when something goes wrong? And uh, I uh, there's a story of a famous surgeon who uh, interviewed people to be interns, and what he felt was um, related to being a successful surgeon, was asking um, uh, these interns, okay, something went wrong, why did it go wrong? And did the surgeon try to draw a lesson from it? This is something that I was partially responsible for this, this, and this reason. What I've learned is I should do A, B, and C. Or did the person just dismiss it as, you know, I'm, I'm blameless here. Uh, there is just, uh, nothing I did was wrong. Um, it's the, the first person is most likely to uh, achieve growth. So you're hiring a person with a certain set of skills now. You'd like those set of skills to improve in the future. It's the first person who's willing to basically talk about how they may be responsible for things that go wrong and how they could learn, as opposed to a person who can just dismiss out of hand uh, the, the, even, even the idea that they've done wrong. So what I want to ask a question of a salesperson, it says something, tell me about a complex deal that you lost mm-hmm. and what Good. happened. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, do I want to yeah. lead them? Do I want to lead them and say, "Tell me what you learned from it," or do I just leave it alone and say, "What happened?" and see if they offer the learnings? I'm a great believer in leaving it alone. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> that is, I want, the, I want, I, it, I don't want them to answer my question. I want them to figure out what question I'm asking. <laughs> so, All right. Uh, and uh, but but I'm, uh, I'm this is a little bit off. But I'm known to do that. I'm I'm known to in interviews with people just sort of sit there and let the other person try to figure out. Okay, what should I be doing here? Um, but uh, I, no, I don't think you want you want to lead them because you don't want to uh, you don't want to assess how good they are at picking up social cues about what they should be, mm-hmm. um, uh, how they should be answering. What you want to do is uh, basically find out um, how does a person respond to things going wrong. Excellent. Uh, and do they take responsibility and do they see it as an opportunity for growth? And, and this is another thing that I think uh, is important to think about. Um, uh, uh, you know, people can adopt different uh, mindsets. This comes from, for example, the work of Carol Dweck, uh, for example, about whether oh. they have a great mindset mm-hmm. or you know they have a, a fixed mindset. Am I already a completing on myself? And um, people who are still working on themselves um, improve, or at least that's how they respond to setbacks. They they figure out how they should respond to them. Uh, in a better way. Uh, people in a fixed mindset are more about fixing blame, if you will. And so not only do you not get the growth, you get you, you get some behavior uh, that can be personally annoying, uh, quite frankly, about hearing how yes. they're faultless. And I don't want to hear about that. Uh, uh, that's, that's not why we're talking. So. so one of the things I do in interviews is I, I, I love growth. I'm a huge fan of growth. You know, I, I joke that I'm a learned person. I'm not a learned person. I, I look, I went to college. I didn't actually get to my degree until I was 46. I dropped out with three credit hours to go, and then one day I woke up and said, I paid all my school loans. I don't have that stupid piece of paper, so I might as well get the piece of paper. So I got it. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what – oh, my gosh, where was I going with this? So um, oh, I completely lost my train of thought on this. So where was I going with this? So um, – all right, we'll go, we'll go. I'll come back to. It. I lost my whole train of thought. So we'll go back to Carol Dweck and this idea that I lo- we were talking about her in the beginning of the show. This idea that says focusing on getting better versus focusing on a goal, right? That says I want to win the U.S. Open. I want to get to in sales. I want to get to 120 percent of quota versus the people who say I want to get better at a particular thing. Mm-hmm. Where do you see, because that's Carol Dweck's work, where do you see her, your your work and Carol's sort of intervening or intersecting as it relates to individuals? Well, uh, I think it uh, relates to individuals in the sense that uh, you have one of the tasks that we have to deal with is learning about yourself. <laughs> you figure, you know, the Greeks said to know thyself, and what our work suggests is that it's very hard to know thyself. Uh, if you break it down, it's, a, it's an impossible task. It's a doable task, especially if you lean on other people and get advice and monitor what other people do, you know, take them as role models, for example. Um, it's a task that you can... Um, uh, get better at so um, uh, all this stuff puts an accent on the growth perspective let's say as opposed to the fixed uh, 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 stable perspective now like you I had a point that I was going to make and I just lost it as so well. I help you so I help you because I got it back the growth mindset and the reason I brought up my history is is my most of all my high school teachers would not believe anywhere I write for Forbes now that I'll laugh no way they ever saw that as a kid what mm-hmm. I got into in my life is I started to realize that I very much a Dweck disciple before I even knew who she was. I knew that 
my intelligence or my skills were not ingrained. They were not anchored. They weren't limit. They weren't uh, finite, right? They right. Finite. I knew they were infinite, and I knew the only way to capitalize on those was to keep learning. So I, I would read books all the time. I would, I just, I was constantly trying to get new information, not even know what I would do with it. Mm-hmm. So one of the questions I ask in interviews is, I say to people, "Hey, when is the, what's the last sales book you read? Mm. How long ago? How many sales books have you read? When's the last leadership book you read? Not company forced, not company dictated. What four or five blogs do you follow?" Mm-hmm. My general consensus, and tell me if I'm wrong, and for other people who do this, when somebody doesn't have an answer or it's been two or three years, they don't follow any blogs, that's a huge red flag to me because what that tells me is you don't give a shit about your personal development and you probably are a guy with two years' ex- expertise and 30 years of experience. Well, I, 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 I would worry a little bit about it. I mean, to the extent we're, we're concerned about whoever the person is now. They can be a different person. They can be a, a much more fantastic person, whatever you name it. Uh, uh, two or three or four or five years down the line, you want to make sure that the, they're on that task, uh, if you will. And um, and I, I just uh, because not only is there being good, there's something else that it's, is is a tricky business that I think people often miss, and that our work suggests people should be more mindful of, which is often success doesn't depend on having the skills necessary to complete the task. It depends on knowing what the task is. Uh, that is, you know, what's the proper goal you should be aiming for? Um, uh, you know, what what do you um, uh, want to do with your life, or what do you want to do with your career? Often, uh, success is being skilled at knowing this is the prop. Uh, you know, this is the thing I should be working on. This is the task. I thought this over here was the task. But no, this over here is the task. So, so for example, when I was a young uh, professor. I thought the task of being a scientist was getting work published, and then it finally dawned on me: no, that's not the task. It's getting work published that someone else is actually going to read. Yeah. <laughs> actually, yes. wildly, wildly changed what the work was about uh, when I realized: no, I've, I've got, I've got this wrong. Uh, and oh, so I was, I was very good at getting work published, but getting uh, work published. Um, uh, that a person read, well, that, that meant I had to work on a skill set, and even now I'm thinking, okay, I, I can now do work that people read, but what really should be the, ta- the task that I'm doing with, uh, with this science thing that I do? So, okay, so uh, can I put so, you so on I think, the spot? So, go ahead, go ahead. Can I put you on the spot? Because I love what you just said. You just talked about a life learning, but the idea that says it wasn't just to publish work, it's to publish mm-hmm. work people read. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot. Is that okay? Sure. You just got on Twitter an hour and a half ago. That is correct. Thanks this, to you, by the way. Oh, yes. But could this sort of be an example of what you're talking about? Because uh, I'll leave it at that. Oh, no, 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 no. I think that's right because uh, the other aspect of always being on the growth curve is that, quite frankly, the world changes. And um, there might be tasks or challenges or opportunities out there that weren't uh, out there a long time ago. So uh, I, I'm a social psychologist. I do research in social psychology. 30 years ago it was absolutely sufficient that only social psychologists read my work because that's the only people who had access to it, the only people who were interested. Now, in 2015, uh, 30 years later, that's not true. I mean, there are a lot of smart people in the world, I discovered, not in academics, uh, smarter than the people in academics, uh, who find their way to the psychological research. And so that uh, the task has changed. So it isn't that I haven't found the right task. The task itself potentially has changed, where um, uh, one of the things I don't do but may uh, 
need to think about more is doing work that has a positive impact not only in the academic world but the non-academic world, uh, making it accessible to the non-academic world. Uh, because quite frankly, the non-academic world often can find value in what I do that I never would have imagined. Uh, I found that out, and that's been very pleasing. But you know, uh, that means the task might be deliberately going for a larger reach than I ever would have imagined, let's say, six months ago. Uh, but some fine people have given me wise counsel about getting the word out. And so, finally, thank you for getting me on Twitter. Uh, oh, my pleasure, dude. I'm a huge fan. I found you. I'm, I'm a non-academic. I found you two and a half years ago when I was researching metacognition, read mm. the entire um, research paper, and, and you've been on the tip of my tongue, and I've quoted you or created my own oh, you know, quotes of you for, for two and a half years. Now. So I was thrilled when you picked up the phone on my first call and said you do the show. So thank you. Oh, great, Love it. great, great. So great. I, I want this to be a platform for you to get more exposure and to help drive your work because at the end of the day, it's the application of your work where the real value comes from, not just even reading it. What if I toss this out to you? It's not just now that you write it, and it's not now that people actually read it. It's to actually apply it for the better good. That's right. Uh, that's right, and not only that is is that uh, and there's feedback that comes back as well. So there are lots of applications to this work I never would have thought of, and lots of ways that this work is important that I never would have thought of. Um, I was doing it because I was curious about how can people be saying these outrageous things in my office, uh, or I read these outrageous things, uh, you know, the criminals do that. Of course, are going to get them caught, but eh, they go ahead and do them anyway. Uh, but other people have taken uh, the work that we've done as a result of that and, and found real value um, and, uh, uh, in what we did. And that, that's them. That's not us. But uh, it only happened because the task changed in terms of, okay, what do you do with a piece of research? Do you get it published or do you send it out in the world so that it can find its true value? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. So, all right, I want to take us back into this because there's another area I want to go. All right, so we've done, you've offered amazing insight on the idea of more self-awareness, humility, I don't know what I don't know, growth, right? All of this stuff is in there, and I, and I hope everybody is paying attention to this because it starts with us. Mm. But, but we have all had to deal with the person who just doesn't get it. The, and usually if it's in a position of authority, our boss... Well, I won't go with our parents. I'll leave that one out of there. But someone in authority, right. what do we do then, David? Well, it, uh, it depends because there are a whole lot of different animals uh, we're dealing with when we're dealing with people who are unskilled or unknowledgeable and don't know it. I mean, uh, someone a long time ago pointed out to me that bosses, by definition, are going to be unknowledgeable. Because often what they have to do is they have to corral a lot of different departments, uh, a lot of different sets of expertise. So they're never going to know as much as you know. So you have to remember that, by definition, you have a person who, uh, A, doesn't know what you know, and B, unfortunately, has someone else talking in his or her ear, telling them to do things that you don't like. So you give, them, give them a break. Um, try to make your case for your boss, but know sometimes you're, you're dealing with a boss who, by definition, is going to have to be, uh, at, at, at times, difficult. Now, in dealing with incompetent people, people can be... Uh, unaware or incompetent because they're just simply young and inexperienced and you tell them and they immediately get it and so good you've dealt with it uh, or you can have a person who's defensive and uh, they're not getting it because they're trying to protect their self-esteem oh, uh, they're trying to protect their self-esteem 
Uh, that one's a little bit harder. What you have to do is th there are some tricks of the trade of tr uh, to try to make sure people aren't defensive. Like talk um, uh, about specifics and behaviors. Don't talk about the character of the person. Uh, yes. Talk about what they do well as well as what they do poorly. There, there are things you can do, so you have to deal with that. And then sometimes there are just some people who don't, who don't, who don't have it. Um, and you sometimes, you know, have to let them go because they, or uh, tell them that this is just not the area for them because um, you've given them advice um, and something's missing and you don't, you may know what, what that missing thing is, you may not know what that missing thing is, but it just isn't happening and, and you do have to give them a chance to prove themselves, but uh, uh, if they're in that third category, sometimes you do have to let them go. Do you know of any research or have you thought about this? Is, it's a two-part question. First, will an organization benefit by trying to build a culture of feedback or realism or whatever the choice of words you want there? So the whole culture is built around the, uh, the, the understanding that we're all not as good as we like to think we are and that we all suffer from this to a certain degree. And so we're going to build a culture that gets right to that through mentors and feedback. And if so, mm -hmm. would, that, would those type of companies outperform other companies who are afraid to go down that road, you know, the traditional HR thing we talked about earlier, don't upset this person, their feelings got hurt, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the answer is is yes, but you have, you have to be careful and you have to be clever. Um, it, that is, you just can't start giving people feedback because a lot of companies decide they're going to give people feedback. But they do it, in, they really don't do it in a careful way and it backfires badly. Um, but uh, here's what companies do that uh, cause things to backfire. Uh, they give you your evaluation when it comes time to decide what your merit pay increase is going to be. Great. Terrific. Make this an entirely pressure-filled situation for a person. How much are they going to be paid? And now you're going to give them feedback, some of it negative. That's not a great way. Or you're going to be nice until you can't take it anymore, and so you go to a person and you yell your feedback at them. Uh, now this person isn't hearing feedback, this person is hearing a yelling idiot. That isn't going to work. So what you, uh, what you need to do is um, have feedback disconnected with consequential points like merit pay. Uh, you have to make it something that's expected and regular so that you're not waiting until your boss, that is your boss doesn't wait until he or she explodes to give you feedback. They're giving you feedback all the time. You make sure that the feedback is concrete and specific. We've hit upon that a, a lot of different times. You know, the, the feedback, uh, which is basically tantamount to saying you suck, is not very helpful. <laughs> you know, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, feedback that's a, a, a little bit, well, I'm, I'm thinking of the last person car, and I actually bought the car despite her, her sales skills. Uh, if I, I would give her feedback, I would say, don't get in the test drive. Immediately turn uh, to a radio station where you don't know if the customer likes that music. She turned on something I hated. And then start on a political rant. Uh, uh, because your customer might have a different political point of view. And so literally I was in this test drive kind of going, um, uh, I'm, I love this car, but... I want. I, I might not buy this car because this person is pissing me off so much. Um, wow. I'm going to have to buy this car despite this person. If you put me in a, in a feedback situation with her, I wouldn't say. I wouldn't say you're stupid. You suck. No, no I, I would say you know watch out for incidental things you might do that might uh, irritate your customer. For example, for example, with me here, are the specific things you did. I I happen 
not to like that variant of country and western music. Uh, sorry, Anne. Uh, <laughs> Uh, when you brought up politics, I went, oh no, this is like a cab ride I've had in many, many different cities in the world in which the person's now going to say very outrageous things, and I just don't want to have to deal with it. So uh, that'd be, I'd, be, I'd be more specific with the behaviors that she did that actually put, the sales at, put that sale at risk. I bought the car, but despite her efforts, uh, quite frankly. So, but, but, uh, so, so I, if you're skilled at giving feedback and you create a culture where people understand that they should be receiving feedback and become skilled themselves and practice themselves at receiving feedback, uh, I have to imagine that organization is going to do much better than another or, uh, organization where people are left in the dark. All right. I like that. I, I'm a huge fan of feedback, huge fan of coaching. We have a coaching thing here, don't we, Keek? Um, so this is good. All right, so we're coming to the end. Um, this has been unbelievable. Kiki, do we have any questions? Anybody have any questions out there? Surprisingly, we've got a ton of shares, a ton of uh, good feedback, but no questions. All right, so if anybody has a question in the last couple of minutes, jump in now. Let it be known. Um, so, David, I'm going to let you sort of take us down the last road. What did we not talk about? What story do you have that you'd like to share what do you want our audience to know about this? Or what do you what do you want to give here in this? Uh, I, uh, I I think I'd like to share two things that are related. The first is that it's just a part of the human condition that we don't know what we don't know. That the vast vastness of our ignorance is uh, just something that's invisible to us, and and. That means we're going to make mistakes at times, but don't get too shook up about it. Congratulations, you're human. This is what everybody goes through. So uh, for myself, when I make a mistake, I just, uh, I, you know, it's just a thing. I mean, it, uh, I don't get too uh, upset about it anymore. I'm, I now learn to expect them. The second thing is that we've been talking about knowing yourself. Um, the same set of issues create a problem in terms of knowing other people and knowing who's the expert in the room. And in fact, we have work showing that uh, the problem for real geniuses or experts out there in the world is everybody else, no one else has the same level of expertise or genius that allows them to recognize just how good the genius is. So yes. geniuses out there in the world often uh, are completely misunderstood or underestimated. And, we, and the data are just coming in like you wouldn't believe. It's just as big, if you will, as the Dunning-Kruger effect. Uh, and, but we've named this one so it doesn't get named after us. Um, we're, uh, we're naming this the Cassandra Quandary after the uh, princess in Greek mythology who was given the gift of prophecy but cursed such that no one else would ever believe her. Uh, and, but what that means is, once again, um, so if you want to assess a person's expertise, you really do have to look at the objective. You really want to take a look at accomplishments, essentially. That, that's a truer guide than even maybe your own assessment of the person's expertise because all, how can we judge another person's expertise when we're imperfect ourselves? So that, we haven't covered that, but that's sort of a newer angle that we've been looking at that, that has turned out to be just as rich as, and as interesting as the Dunning-Kruger effect. So have you finished? Is this research been published? Is it out there? Can I start learning about it now? Not yet? I, uh, not yet. We're about to uh, submit the first round. I mean, we have data for three papers, but we haven't sent in the first one yet. We're going we're gonna, to, uh, sooner or later, now that I'm on Twitter, uh, yes. <laughs> I'm going to uh, send it in and, uh, and see if we can get this paper born into, uh, into the literature. Um, but um, 
Uh, but that so that's uh, so hot off the press it isn't even off the press yet. Um, let us know. When, let us know when you do it, and I want to have you back to go through that. Oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. Absolutely, this was been absolutely freaking awesome. Um, so my what I'd like to leave with listeners, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I'd like to leave with listeners that leadership begin to allow to embrace this idea in two manners. One, stop hiring for experience. Stop going out and trying to get the check boxes, but actually look for people who are going to have a growth mentality, who actually recognize they don't know what they don't know, and who are always open and embracing change in their own personal development. Number one, look for those people and build a process to find those. And two, appreciate the fact that you don't know it all, and that you yourself can benefit from this and grow yourself. Those are what I think I'd like to leave folks here to have the humility to recognize that you yourself don't have it and you should be doing the same thing you're asking of your people. Did I get that? Yeah, that sounds pretty good to me. Uh, that is often, uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin said, uh, I believe it was Benjamin Franklin, that uh, the, uh, the way to the doorstep of the Temple of Wisdom is knowing what you don't know. Amen. I love that. I know. I, I don't know what I don't know. So, David, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. This was fantastic. Kiki, any any last second questions? Are we good? We are all set. You did awesome, David. Excellent. Thank you. Fantastic. So, people, you can remember you can listen to this in uh, podcasts on iTunes to so check it out. It's also on SoundCloud, and this sucker will be up in, on YouTube within the next. 45 seconds of close. So until next time, y'all, thank you very much. Kiki, we good? We're good, buddy. All right, peace. I'm out. Just to the next episode.